UK Motor Dog. It was very sad to hear the death of, well, the man they called the greatest Formula One champion that Britain never had. So Sterling Moss died in the last few hours at the grand age of, well, he was almost 91. Sterling had retired from public life a couple of years ago. But I was fortunate to know the man for many, many years, certainly since the mid-90s, when he was on what was effectively his, I guess, third career, his involvement with the motorsport events at Goodwood and classic motoring and motorsport around the globe. His career was incredibly successful. He was runner-up in the Formula One World Championship four times. Statistically, if you look at the bold numbers, it doesn't look like he was hugely successful. He won 16 out of 60 races, so you know, a little over a 25% hit rate. But what the statistics don't tell you is actually the number of races of all sorts that he actually competed in, which most experts reckon were over 500. So races, rallies, long-distance events, and of course, that uh, great event in Italy, the uh, Mille Miglia that he won at a record time. I think the average was over 150 miles an hour in the Mercedes SLR. 2002. Sterling reunited today with, with a car which is uh, a marvellous history for you. Did you ever think you'd be driving that with some gusto along the embankment? I must say, it was just a shame that it wasn't a bit clearer, so we could have given it more gusto. No, it's a fantastic car. That is the actual car that won the Mille Miglia, the Targa Florio and the TT. So it has enormous history, and to see it looking so good and going so well is, is, is magnificent. Now you had a, an almost equally famous passenger. Incredible. I, I didn't know I could afford such a valuable man, actually. <laughs> and old Murray, Murray Walker, who's a wonderful character. And, and what was so nice, he said that of all the cars he wanted to go in, that was the one. Uh, because it's got the history and the romance and so on. Of course, he's old enough to remember it as well. So, yeah, that was very, very special to go with Murray because I'm a great fan of his as well. It is a very special motor car. It's a man like yourself who has an enormous number of friends who've never met you. Well, he, I can understand with him because he's, he is such a... I mean, he's the only way you can make a Formula One race exciting as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it is not really the most exciting sport usually. But with Murray in there, going the way he does, I think it's fantastic. 2008. I think my best race, quite honestly, was, was the Mille Miglia, which of course isn't a Formula One race. I think in Formula One, probably my best race was Monaco 61, but in sports cars, which, which I really liked driving, uh, the Mille Miglia was, in my mind, my best race. And um, it was a, the only race I think that ever made, I was nervous about. It really worried me because I didn't know, I didn't know you can't learn a thousand miles. And to drive on a, on a circuit where you don't know what's happening is, is very frightening. And luckily I had a chap called Dennis Jenkinson who came with me with a, what we called a toilet roll and giving me signals, so which helped. But uh, otherwise, but then having said that, I was really frightened of it. But once the flag fell, of course, fear goes away and you, you're off and, and it takes over the, the exhilaration and the pleasure of the thrill of going you know, through a thousand miles. It's, it's difficult to describe. Of course, the thing in Sterling's career and, and of the 50s and 60s is very much that uh, a driver would drive anything and several times would drive several different cars in different formulae 
at the same race meeting. I think uh, Sterling said that uh, at one stage he'd driven 62 cars in that particular year. Uh, and I can well believe that. And he excelled not just in the Formula One cars, but in sports cars. And uh, just about every formula known to man. 2001. Well, one of your favourite cars. You've been very complimentary oh. about this Maserati in the past. One of, one, of, one of the finest cars ever built, actually. A really user-friendly car. I mean, that, that is one of the nicest and most beautifully balanced cars you'll get. Terrific. We heard you a few moments ago talking about these 50s racing cars. You drove an enormous variety of the cars that are, that are currently lined up here waiting to go. Uh, if it's old enough, I've driven it. I've driven 84 different types of car, and therefore there are an awful lot here. There are a few I even older than I am, but of the more modern ones, up to 62, I drove most of them. What was it that made the Maserati 250F so special? Because it, it does have a very special feel in 50s motor racing. Well, just the balance of the whole car. You could drive it, you can really drive it on the throttle. In other words, steer it on the throttle. It was a very, very rewarding car. You can get the back out and it wouldn't understeer too much or oversteer too. It was really a very lovely car to drive, with a lovely balance. Of the many that you've driven, I think it was 84 you su suggested yeah, 84 there? Different types, yeah. Is this your favourite or, or not? I would say it's certainly one of my favourites, yes. I mean, there are others you have to think about, the Aston Martin, the Birdcage Mazda and so on. You know, but, but this is one, one of the classics and it is so beautiful to look at and it's uh, a very rewarding car in every way. I was lucky enough to see Sterling win a race. I think I was seven years old, 1958, I think that must have been. And uh, he was already well into his career there, driving for Mercedes, partnering the great champion, Juan Manuel Fangio. And he gave as good as he got. Alfred Neubauer, the, the, the team boss, uh, used to ask them to drive a little further apart because they, they would come past the pits so close together, it was almost like they were welded together, that the two of them were in the same car. And they just trusted each other implicitly in their driving skills. 2008. Fangio and I, of course, raced very closely, and I got really close to behind him, you know, and, caught, and in fact, we were known as the train because he was so close to him. But Neubauer came up to me once and said, you know, this is ridiculous, you can't go that close. What happens if he has a crash? I said, well, you know, it doesn't happen with Fangio, you know, you just follow him and it's the right thing to do. And, and I must say it was uh, uh, a, a tremendous experience for me and I learned a tremendous amount from him not by asking him things but by just seeing what he did and how he you know how he was and so on but my eternal problem really the thing that I missed terribly really was uh, of course I had to speak to Fangio in Italian because I couldn't speak uh, Spanish he he spoke Italian I don't speak much Italian uh, and therefore I couldn't ask him very much about the you know technical things but uh, uh, he was he was a fantastic man, and, and we had a we had a wonderful relationship. And there's there's still the thing that I I, I could beat him in sports cars, but it, in Formula One he was the master. But I did win the British Grand Prix, and I still to this day I still don't know whether he you know thought well, God it's it's your your race the British Grand Prix better for Mercedes and doesn't matter to me. So I don't know if if he let me win or not. All I do know is I I did get pole position. And I started off behind Fangio, and the the rules at Mercedes were quite interesting because we'd the only team orders we have were when we got thirty seconds, a Mercedes got thirty seconds lead over the rest of the field, which of course in today is ridiculous, but in those days it was. Then they put out an REG sign. REG meant regulari in Italian, and that meant hold your position. 
Now, the British Grand Prix started and we hadn't got to the, the, anything like that. So I was following Fangio in my normal position. He got bought by a bet marker. So I nipped through and then I went as hard as I could. And of course he was behind. And, and I don't know to this day whether, whether he let me win because I came around the last corner at, at Aintree. And there's only a short, relatively short distance up through the pit to the finish line. And I got right over to the right. I put my foot flat on the floor and waved him on. And I thought, well, if he can go past me, he's got a better engine. It wasn't this isn't the way it worked. And of course, we finished up just like this. And so, um, but it would have been quite easy for him to just ease back. I just don't know. I asked him, I must say, I did ask him after we'd finished racing. I said, did you let me win? He said, no, no, no. He said, it was your day. You were on form. That still doesn't answer it, though. 2016. Sterling, there have been a lot of incidents recently in Formula One, young drivers, perhaps inexperienced young drivers, a lot of bumping and boring. In your day, it had to be done a little differently. The results could have been a lot more dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you've got to ha have is respect of the other drivers, respect of the car, that sort of thing, and drive accordingly. I mean, we have had some drivers who are terrible. No, no two ways about it. Others who have been extremely good, and I think they're, they're the ones we're most interested in. A driver who understands what racing's all about and drives accordingly. See, in your day, in the, in the, the well, your height in the 50s and early 60s, you were losing drivers quite rapidly anyway. It was several per season being killed. And you didn't bang wheels because that could be disastrous. Yeah, well, I mean, in, the, in those days, motor racing is a dangerous sport anyway. And uh, there's no, no doubt that a lot of, pe a lot of drivers did, did die at that time, mainly because of either mechanical failure or maybe driver co incompetence. What we're seeing now are drivers on a, on a very, very shortened path into a Formula One cockpit. Now, you had a number of years in the sport before you got your first F1 drive, and I think you, your dad had to buy the car anyway. Yeah, I, I was, I've been driving quite a long time with John Heath and doing, driving different cars, and uh, my father went to see Mercedes to see if they'd sign me up the following year, we, because the rumour went round that they were coming back. And they said, well, we've seen Sterling driving some pretty awful cars. We'd like to see him in something that's competitive. So my father went down to Maserati, because Ferrari wouldn't sell cars then, no. not to private people. And he went to Maserati, bought a 250F, and uh, I'm glad to say that's what really helped me. I, the, I think my best bit of luck on that was that on the, I went to, to uh, Bern, which is a very difficult circuit, and uh, at Bern I managed to, in the, in the wet, um, get the fastest lap of anybody, including the, including the Mercedes Fangio. And that's what uh, Neubauer then signed me up to race with them the following year. And he won with Mercedes, but he also drove with Maserati, drove with Van Wall, Cooper and Lotus. And he never drove for Ferrari, there's a story of course in there. He, uh, was offered a drive with Ferrari at somewhat derisory terms. He drove to Italy for a test. The car wasn't there, uh, and uh, he simply drove home again, and that was it. He wouldn't even take the calls from the uh, commendatorians of Ferrari thereafter because he'd let him down. He, the, the one thing that I learned, uh, and I'm sure many learned this before me, was that Sterling was uh, an honourable man. Honour and trust and respect were... Uh, signature facets of his life and career. 2009. 
we've been going around the town celebrating the life of a contemporary of yours, a great legend, a friend of yours, a rival, Mike Hawthorne. Now, Mike won the World Championship in 1958 in slightly controversial circumstances, and you stood up for him at a point where his points were likely to be taken away for one race because he was alleged to have pushed the car. But you, you stood for him. Fifty years later, is that a decision that, that you have had a moment's regret for? Yeah, not a bit. I mean, that's what should be done, what I do now, and uh, you know, no regrets at all. I mean, I happen to like Mike. We, we fought on the track and so on, but uh, he was a great guy, and what he did was ridiculous. I mean, to, to try and penalise a man because he gets a push start is ridiculous, and, and I still feel it. But it got to the end of the season, and, and he beat you in the World Championship by one point. You several times then subsequently were runner-up in the World Championship. But do you not regret it at all? Is that, is that your sense of fair play? That's how you see things? No, it has to be like that, frankly. I mean, it, it's ridiculous to... I mean, regu regulations are made, I hope, to imp improve our sport, not to, de to de you know, be detrimental. So what I did, I think, was correct. I do it again, and, and certainly uh, Mike deserved to win anyway. I mean, I think there were certain times when... Uh, you know, if the reverse happened, he'd have done the same for me, I'd like to hope. One story that I remember him telling me, he was in a Ferrari 250 top of the meeting race at Goodwood. He was so far ahead in leading that race that he had uh, put the radio on to check on his position. So um, he knew the BBC were covering the race live. So he was listening to the race on the radio as he was leading it. I think that's uh, somewhat of the measure of the confidence of Sir Sterling Moss in his own abilities. 2005. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely true. I mean, I was listening to Raymond Baxter because Baxter was telling us all about the race. My mechanics were telling me what I was doing, but Raymond was telling me what was going on. So it was a very, very, worked out very well. Sadly, he had that uh, tragic crash in 62 in the, April, in the Easter meeting. He never truly recovered from that accident and he retired from Formula One. Shortly thereafter, he said he couldn't cut it anymore. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he said that he thought he could have done with a little more time. And uh, he told me that in some ways he regretted retiring when he did. But nevertheless, he made that decision then and he stuck with it. 2001. We've just uh, finished or just ended the practice for the, the 500cc cars. They were the first sorts of cars that you drove here and very successfully. Oh, they, they're terrific round here. I mean, the road is so much wider for them because, of course, they're so small. And, and if you get things set up properly, you can come past the pits and keep your, flat on, your foot flat on the floor around the next two corners and around forward water. And, you know, it's a, really quite an exhilarating drive in those. The skills that you learnt in those, of course, then stood you in very good stead because you went through all of the formulae, not just Formula One, but saloon cars, sports cars, you drove just about everything. Yeah, I, mean, I must say, I enjoyed every type of racing, and the 500s gave me a jolly good founding, that's the point, they, they gave me a grounding in, in the hill climbs, which I think was good because you, you, your other competitors aren't able to come alongside you and egg you on, you know, you're on your own against the clock. Then, of course, in races like this, and I learned things like slipstreaming, which makes a big difference in a little car. I learned about gear ratios and how to get the thing geared properly, and then moved on from that into uh, Formula 2 and, and uh, from then, of course, Formula 1 and sports cars. So, really, I was able to race at, on this circuit in all types of cars as well. 
Now, sadly, that Formula One career effectively ended here in 1962. You don't remember, I think, much of that incident or that day. No, that was on, on the East, uh, Bank Holiday Monday, of course, in 62. And uh, unfortunately, I was unconscious for a month and paralyzed for six months. So there's not really very much that I remember. In fact, I don't remember anything. The first thing I do remember was coming to in hospital, thinking that the accident had happened just the day before. It was actually a month. And I do remember going to a party the night before and meeting a rather attractive South African lady. And that, that's about it. <laughs> I have been lucky enough to spend many hours talking to him and making a film about him some years ago and uh, interviewing on radio and um, many, many times we met and he was always charming, always happy to talk for hours and hours and hours with um, his loyal wife Susie prompting him on occasion when, as he got into his late 80s, the memory wasn't quite as good as it had been. 2008. Well, I've just made a managing director. I'm the chairman, so I can sit back and do nothing but be in the chair, and she can get on with the work. That's the whole idea. Nonsense. He made me managing director so he didn't have to give me a rise. You know, that's give me another, a title. That's another thing, yes. <laughs> Is he difficult to work with? Uh, yes. Yes, he's quite... No, I mean, he's wonderful to work with, but because he's so hands-on, he is a nightmare to work with. He'll tell you to do it, and then he wants to do it. And he'll tell you to make a phone call... And then he's going to be standing there listening to you make the phone call and then take the call. But he's, no, he's wonderful. But he is very hands-on, so he's a nightmare for that. He keeps the diary. Yeah. She tells me what to put in it. No, we, we, we really are a team, I must say that, from, from everything we do, every, every contract I sign, uh, if it's making a PA or something, and Susie comes along, uh, mainly, mainly because she's with my floppy disk and the hard drive. I forget things very quickly, she reminds me. And she's got amazing memories because of the filing cabinet. So I know as long as she's there, where, where I'm going to be and who I'm talking to. So we're back at the end of your career to teammates. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly and, that. And we do drive together. I do do the rallies with yes, him. So it's in the car as well. We fight even more there. And I, I might <laughs> tell you, when I, when I had a Chevron, Susie went down and learned how to change the gears. Now, I couldn't change the gears on the Chevron gearbox. Susie can. Otherwise, he wouldn't take me. He said, I can take you or a mechanic. Yes, you can, yes, <laughs> you can right. do it or you stay at home. <laughs> so we do everything together. We always have. Uh, our thoughts go out to Susie and to the family that have been so close around him in his closing years. Sterling will always stick in my memory. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet and interview many of my heroes, but none was a greater hero than Sterling. And when we made a film about him some years ago, one of the first things I saw as I walked into the hall away of his house was a photo of him winning that very race that I had seen him win in 1958. It brought the whole thing around full circle. And I was lucky enough to be able to talk to him at some length and noted that in his office, the only two photos that he had signed autographed photos of drivers was one Manuel Fangio and the only driver of the current crop was Lewis Hamilton. They had met and we'd arranged one or two combined events and they'd become good friends. But 
Well, it is with great regret uh, that I hear of his death, but I will certainly miss him greatly and uh, remember him always. And I talk about him to my grandson, and um, my grandson knows of him and uh, unfortunately never never met Sterling. But I'll continue to, to tell the story of the greatest world champion that Britain never had, but a man who, in my view, is one of the greatest racing drivers ever. 1999. Sterling Moss in the paddock. Your 70th birthday yesterday. You seem to enjoy the uh, kiss from Marilyn Monroe. Uh, it was a tremendous day. I mean, that was just part of it. I can tell you the whole, it was very humiliating, really. I mean, or humbling is the word, not familiar. <laughs> humbling is the word because an amazing amount of people seem to seem to, uh, you know, share it with me. And, and it's, that really is fabulous. I mean, well, it's, it's a measure of your popularity. Enormous applause as you went round in that open top Cadillac. Well, it, it, that's wonderful because it obviously is an indication that I succeeded in what I was trying to do. In other words, enjoy myself having fun in cars and other people seem to like me doing it and watching it. So uh, it was a wonderful day. I really, really and, the, and this is like a birthday weekend for you, is it? It's, it's what you might call a, wor a working wor birthday weekend, yes. The, I mean, the, the relaxing time, my boys, when I get in the race car and get out there. The only trouble is if it then pours with rain, then I can't relax so much. But otherwise, that's, that's when I can get away from it all and enjoy the pleasure of what these cars are all about.